It's a pleasure to be here. We are going to proceed relatively quickly at a brisk pace. We have four speakers for our panel. The panel, which has been entitled Policymaking Considerations Regarding Regional Geopolitical Dynamics, Iraq and Syria. Uh, our order is going to be slightly different from how it is in the book. We're going to be starting with Mona Yakubian, uh, moving to Judith Yaffe, uh, Abdullah Ashamari, and then David Lesh at the end. Uh, to introduce them very quickly, again, not to take time for this, uh, so to uh, cut straight to this, but uh, Mona Yakubian comes to us as she's senior advisor in the Middle East. Uh, of Middle East and Project Director, Pathways to Progress for the Stimson Center, formerly Special Advisor, Senior Program Officer on the Middle East at U.S. Institute of Peace, uh, and before that, North Africa Analyst, U.S. Department of State. Judith Yaffe is Distinguished Research Fellow for the Middle East, Institute for National Strategic Studies, former Senior Analyst in the Office of Near East, uh, Near Eastern and South Asian Analysis, Directorate of Intelligence at the CIA. Uh, uh, Abdullah Shamari is an advisor to the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Culture and Information, fresh from Istanbul. Uh, and David Lesh is professor of Middle East history, Trinity University, uh, author of The Fall of the House of Assad, uh, Arab-Israeli Conflict, uh, and, and more. Uh, the title of the first talk... Uh, with uh, of Monia Kubian is shifting the paradigm in Syria a role for U.S. leadership. Monia Kubian. Great, thank you so much, John. Good afternoon, and thanks for the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations for the invitation. Um, I was told I had ten minutes, so what I'm going to try and do is unpack Syria in five minutes, and then. Uh, do some U.S. policy recommendations in another five minutes. Would you come up here? Do you mind coming? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank of you. Course. Sorry, I didn't say anything. Sorry. About it. Apologies, trying to save time. Okay, so, so as I said, I'd like to first start by talking a little bit about the conflict in Syria, where it is today, and then uh, talk a little bit about U.S. policy options. In terms of where the conflict in Syria is today, it is now 19 months into by far the bloodiest of the Arab uprisings. Uh, there have been more than 30,000 people killed, about 350,000 refugees in the countries around, surrounding Syria, one and a half million Syrians internally displaced inside the country, 28,000 Syrians are reported as having been disappeared. Um, this is clearly a conflict of tragic proportion in terms of the human cost. In addition, there have been significant spillover effects. We've seen just in the last few weeks uh, incredible things happening in the region. There has been cross-border artillery fire between Syria and Turkey for about five days uh, going. There has been, um, of course, the assassination last week in Lebanon, unclear yet who perpetrated that attack, but it is widely seen as being yet another a spillover effect of the crisis. We have seen a terrorist plot foiled in Jordan in which uh, extremists potentially connected to al-Qaeda were going to use arms that they had gotten from Syria to undertake a terrorist attack inside Jordan. So we have both the humanitarian dimensions inside Syria, 
we have the refugee crisis and the necessary strain that that has put on countries that are hosting Syrian refugees. Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, each of those countries hosts at least 100,000 registered refugees at an enormous cost uh, and at a significant strain to their infrastructure. And we see the security dimensions, uh, the spillover effect that has taken place around the region. Uh, it is an incredibly dynamic and volatile conflict, one in which I think those observing it are continually surprised and overtaken by the pace of events on the ground. But that said, I think there are three constant factors that uh, have been at play in the Syrian crisis from the very beginning. And these, the interplay, I would argue, of these three factors has much to do with why the, the conflict has taken such a downward uh, spiral. The first is that from the beginning, the Syrian regime has viewed this conflict as an existential threat from the very beginning. And as a result, has not been interested in negotiating uh, a solution, has not been interested, or certainly will not willfully step aside as we saw in Tunisia, Egypt, and even in Yemen. And I would argue probably is, is not amenable to any sort of negotiated solution. The second constant is that the opposition has been perpetually divided, fragmented, unable to coalesce around uh, a, a unifying vision of a post-Assad Syria. We've seen divisions amongst the external opposition. We've seen divisions inside Syria. We've seen divisions amongst the armed groups, divisions based on personal rivalries, divisions based on ideology, divisions based on patrons, and so forth. And the third factor is that the international community has remained um, at a stalemate, has been unable to, to reach a consensus on how to move forward in Syria. We've seen three Security Council vetoes by Russia and China, uh, causing many to call the UN essentially ineffective in this crisis. So it's been the interplay of these three factors, these three constants, I would argue, that have, that have led Syria down the path that it has taken. In terms of U.S. policy, U.S. policy is based on the objective of having Assad, as President Obama called for, step aside. This was back in August of 2011. The problem with U.S. policy is that it has continually been uh, at conflict with itself in terms of how to achieve that objective while also achieving or protecting U.S. national security interests in the region. Namely, I would argue, uh, very understandable concerns about, about the impact of unseating Assad and the potential for massive instability across the region. So at the crux of U.S. policy on Syria, I would argue, has resided this tension of wanting Assad to go, but being concerned and fearful about how to achieve that objective while also seeking to maintain stability in such a volatile region of the world. Now, the debate right now on Syria is focused largely on this question of whether or not to arm the opposition, which is to say to provide uh, more sophisticated heavy weapons to the armed opposition. They are already receiving some amount of weaponry uh, from countries in the Gulf, uh, as well as from Turkey, perhaps. 
But the, the focus of the debate in the U.S. has been whether or not, or frankly, why not arm the opposition? Why not have the U.S. either directly or indirectly provide sophisticated heavy weapons to the uh, Syrian rebels? That's one argument that's forwarded. The other argument that's forwarded is to use military force in order to establish a safe haven in the northern part of Syria that borders uh, Turkey. A safe haven would necessarily require a no-fly zone. So the debate has been around these two uh, military types of interventions. I would argue that, in fact, what needs to be done is to shift the paradigm. That further militarization of the conflict in Syria is not the answer and is not going to bring this country to a more peaceful, rapid uh, end to this horrendous conflict. Let me provide maybe a few points on what I see as the dangers of arming the opposition and then maybe just conclude with uh, a few more points on this idea of shifting the paradigm and, and, and having the U.S. frankly assert more leadership in the realm of diplomacy. The downside to arming an opposition that is continually fractured and increasingly radicalized. Uh, there are several downside risks to this. One is, even under the best circumstances and with the best vetting, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to ensure that these arms do not end up in the wrong hands. We have lessons from Afghanistan in particular that we should constantly remind ourselves of as we think about this. Secondly, in such a fractured environment, it's also very difficult to see or to guarantee that various rebel groups will not turn their arms on each other. Unfortunately, the situation in Syria has, has already deteriorated to such a point that even if Assad were to magically disappear tomorrow, that would not spell the end of the conflict or the problems in Syria. There are significant issues now at play, significant sectarian tensions as well as ethnic tensions between Kurds and Arabs and so forth. The third argument is that if the U.S. arms or helps to arm these, these opponents, it will translate into uh, greater U.S. influence over those who eventually run Syria. Again, history proves that that is not the case. So, I, so let, me, let me, with that, with my two minutes that I've now been told I have left, let me, let me move and try to end on a positive note, which is essentially my own sense is the downside risks of a military option in Syria are significant. I also think the fact that we have reached the point we have reached with the conflict, which is to say such a significant uh, escalation of horrific violence inside the country, as well as such threatening regional spillover effects, suggests that we may be at a point where if the U.S. can leverage its leadership, can key off of these various threats to bring together the key parties for whom, for, for whom none of the parties really is it in their interest to see Syria descend into a years-long civil war, 
And in particular, I think the, the, most, the most interesting potential turning point is the cross-border uh, fighting that took place between Syria and Turkey. Because that brings with it the credible threat of the use of force via NATO and Turkey's uh, use of Article 5 in the NATO Treaty. So what I am proposing is backed by that credible threat of force, the U.S. exert its soft power leadership in the region and bring together key parties, including Russia, including Iran. And if it's not the U.S. doing that directly, there is an interesting initiative that is taking place at a regional level being spearheaded by Egypt, in which Egypt, Turkey, Iran, and ideally Saudi Arabia are seeking some sort of solution to the crisis. Perhaps that effort being done at the regional, effort, at the regional level, the U.S. exercising its strength and diplomacy at a more global level may help to bring the Syrian crisis toward a softer landing. I would just close by saying this. I think throughout the debates and the discussions around not just Syria, but frankly U.S. policy more broadly on the Arab transitions, whether it's with respect to Egypt or Libya or elsewhere, there's been this constant refrain that the U.S. has been absent. And I think there's a certain truth to that. But the second piece is that therefore the U.S. needs to engage uh, militarily or needs to engage its hard power. And I would argue that between that, within that spectrum, or there are two ends of the spectrum, one doing nothing, the other exerting uh, military and hard power influence, I would argue that the most powerful and effective tool and the one that's least discussed, but the one that I think provides the greatest hope for Syria and for the region more broadly is for the U.S. to engage using soft power. And I'll leave it at that. Our second speaker is uh, Judith Yaffe uh, with the title, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, Iraq and the Conflicting Demands of the Syrian Crisis. Judith Yaffe. Well, I apologize for the cliché. It was hard not to do it since I'm talking it basically from uh, an Iraq-centered perspective and looking out at these crises. I guess I could have called it in a way, let's talk about the ducks building on our last panel, but I won't do that. I think everyone is looking for lessons learned. Well, didn't we learn any lessons from Iraq or Afghanistan or you name the crisis? And the problem is we always learn a lot of lessons and we don't learn any lessons. And I think if you look at the, what I want to do is lay out some of the dilemma here for those who are wondering what we are supposed to do. Now, um, I think you have to put a certain perspective on this as well. Those of us who sit in Washington find difficulty in putting the issues that are going on in the Middle East in perspective, especially in an election year. Uh, we're good Americans and we tend to take a very short view of history. We can only think ahead to the next election, whoops, that's only two weeks, and many of us don't remember the last election. Hard to imagine, but I have students who don't know about the Vietnam War because they were born after that, and that's hard for me to take in. Uh, but I think that our collective memory only goes about as long as a football game, or if you don't like a football game, a sitcom or whatever. 
The problem is uh, many people also look at yesterday's enemy as tomorrow's trading partner, and they tend to think everything is relative. Well, when you're in the middle of it, it's not all relative. How can we understand what the relationships are like out there and therefore fashion a policy when we really don't put together all the pieces that make Iraq and Iran uh, partners or not? When uh, Iraq and Syria are partners and enemies. In other words, this is a very complicated thing, but uh, Iraq, Iran, and Syria, collectively speaking, have been rivals for power, for water, for territory, uh, for the region for what, I would say at least 1,500 years, maybe it's 7,000 years. Choose your history. Now, we all know what brought Iran and Syria together three decades ago was war against a common set of enemies, Iraq and by extension the greater and lesser Satans, Iran's need for Lebanon, Hezbollah, ability to leverage the, the opposition to the peace process, Syria needed an ally against the hated Ba'athist regime in Baghdad, and money and cheap oil. And in the beginning it was sort of a mutual uh, let's get together because the, the enemy of the enemy is my friend, and now what we have has been a, a change over time. They're no longer equal partners and haven't been for a long time. It is Iran that is the dominant partner. What brought Iran and the new Iraq together, the post-Saddam Iraq? Well, again, a common enemy. Saddam first, and then after 2003, the American occupation. Um, I don't think, um, if you think about the new Baghdad, now that Saddam is gone, it isn't that a pity. Some of us do miss him because it's so difficult to not imagine life without him, but it certainly made uh, these complex issues so much more simple by comparison. Um, but the Iraq he so carefully constructed is gone. So what's the relationship between Persian and Shia, Alawite, Arab, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think that life and politics in this region it can be reduced to the simplicity of those kinds of formulas us against them, Shia against Sunni, Persian against Arab. Um, I think the rivalries go back, as I said, a long time. You can go back to the 7th century when the Umayyads defeated uh, the Imam Hussein and created Shiism as a sect, 680. You can go back to the rivalries of the Caliphate, but don't bother with that. You just go back a couple of years to the great rivalry that began in the 1960s between Saddam and Hafez al-Assad, and I think you get the picture that this is a rivalry of long-standing, and it doesn't change, and like relations don't get, don't get simple just because a greater hated leader is gone. Now, if you look at where we are now, Nuri Maliki, he's been accused of a lot of things lately, and my remarks don't say, uh, don't mean to speak for or against anything. After all, I'm from the government. I don't speak for or against. These opinions are my own, and I have to say, Paul, not those of, of any of the government that I work for or any, any other government for organization for that matter. But the thing is, Mal uh, Maliki is giving us a very important and interesting dilemma. He became prime minister in 2006. He was a member of the once clandestine Dawa party. Spent more than 20 years in exile, first in Iran and then in Syria. It cannot have been pleasant for a young Iraqi dependent on the charity of the Mukhabarat of both of these states uh, to, uh, to survive and make do in these, in these complex societies. So here is the dilemma. Maliki, I see him as an Iraqi Shia Arab who's a nationalist and an independent-minded politician, 
determined to reconstruct a strong Iraq, or at least stronger than its Kurdish, Syrian, and Iranian allies or partners or cohabitants in this state would like to permit in here is a dilemma. And it's a dilemma for us. Maliki is accused of being the new Saddam or the, a muscular Democrat. You can choose. I don't care. The point is he's got some choices to make that are, that are difficult. I have to try with this technology here. It's driving me crazy. Now, I think Maliki is wary of Syria. I think all Iraqis are. Uh, it's allowed Sunni Arab Salafis, extremists, Al-Qaeda, Baathist renegades to cross the border since 2003 to smuggle weapons and conduct operations aimed at destabilizing <clears throat> Iraq. It's stirred up the Sunni Arab tribes. It's given safe haven to members of Saddam's family and regime. And let's remember, anti-Baathist enemies die hard. And I think it's much more than being just Baathist versus Baathist or Arab versus Arab. There's always been a rivalry between these two states and leaderships uh, time, going back in time. Iran insists that Baghdad support the Assad regime, help it supply it with whatever it needs, uh, permit air resupply operations, cross-border transit of trucks with supplies, uh, access to hard currency and gold that's in Baghdad's banks because the Syrians need it as sanctions bite deeper in Iran as well. Baghdad, where does Baghdad stand in this? Complicated. Refuse, they refused to sign a status of forces agreement with us, uh, insisted on the December 2011 withdrawal of combat forces, but I don't think they expected us to leave uh, and shut the door behind us. They are awaiting delivery of 36 F-16s beginning in, nine, in 2014. They're eager to purchase other arms as well. I think it is supposed to be in two tranches um, of 18 and 18, but the point is the dates are starting to shift a little bit. Uh, but the U.S. is still a good place for the Iraqis to shop, and they would like to do that. But Baghdad's also signed a $4.2 billion deal for helicopter gunships and surface-to-air missiles uh, with Moscow. It could look to purchase MiGs. In other words, they got a lot of money again, and they're out there with their suitcases shopping around. Does anybody remember the shop-till-you-drop phase of Saddam in the 1980s? It's back, and they have money. Money, by the way, they are now producing a 3.0 uh, million barrels per day. I got that right, Paul? For export, that's uh, as much. They are at, back now to where they were at 1980, in, in the, at 1980, just before uh, war began with, uh, with Iran. And they are way ahead of Iran, which is under sanctions. Not bad. Remember the oil energy issue? Good. Now, Washington complains. Washington's been complaining about Iraqi's support to the Assad regime and acquiescence to Iranian pressure to do so. And it hints there could be problems in delivery of the F-16s, maybe a delay while things sort themselves out. After all, Baghdad's violating internationally imposed sanctions, and you all know what that means. Yes, right on the mark. So here's the dilemma for Maliki and for the United States. What do we do? And remember, I don't think that Maliki, uh, I don't think he's an Iranian tool or an American tool or anybody else's. He's, he has his own, uh, he's got his own strategy and his own goals in this game. So what do we do? If, for example, if I were in Baghdad making decisions, and like Maliki, I'm interested in building a stronger and effective Iraq, I might say to myself, gee, I better rethink my policy towards Assad. But I don't know if he's thinking that or not. It could be. He's kind of cagey. 
If Assad stays in power, now I'm not Maliki, thinking like Maliki anymore, but I'm just thinking in general. If Assad stays in power, Assad may be grateful to Baghdad and cut off aid to the ambitious Kurds who are going to be a thorn in both sides, but everybody waits till later to deal with. And then there's the Sunni and Arab extremists like the Salafis and Al-Qaeda. Iraq's Shia and Maliki would no longer have to worry about the Muslim Brotherhood taking over in Damascus and encouraging sectarian civil war in Iraq. And I think the Iraqis uh, increasingly are seeing this as a, a growing, possibly even existential crisis, should this go on out of control. If Assad loses, then what happens, uh, the decision making in Baghdad and here? Iraq could become more, or not could, will become more enmeshed in Iranian strategic thinking. It will be Iran's new periphery, its strategic depth against the West, protecting Tehran from its enemies. This will not be a comfortable place for Maliki or Iraq, and Maliki could find himself under even greater pressure from Tehran to make concessions to Iranian interests. If, however, Think about it from a Washington perspective, and it, I don't care who's in the White House, it doesn't matter. The question becomes how far do we let Baghdad go in helping Assad without paying a price in U.S. support or assistance, either military or civilian under the strategic framework, which we are now um, wanting to negotiate. Now, if you measure, I think this was some famous recent Secretary of Defense said the knowns and the unknowns. I am stopping, it's my last sentence. <laughs> I hate when they bathist. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't help that. Couldn't help John. Losing Syria, as, as Rumsfeld once said, maybe it's wiser to insist on Iraqi compliance with measures to isolate Bashar. If we ignore Baghdad's support for Assad and the risk of a lingering and dangerous civil war and spillover into Iraq and elsewhere grows, losing Syria as a strategic ally will not cause the collapse of the government in Iran, although it could weaken Ahmadinejad even more than he's weakening anyway. Weakening Baghdad by threatening Maliki, though, has an, could have a major unintended consequence, and that is this. Uh, could uh, push Maliki, uh, push him closer to Tehran and away from possible rapprochement with, Arab, with Iraq's Arab neighbors, which, in my humble opinion, is not a good idea. Thank you. Okay, so in my role as a non-Bathist uh, moderator, uh, uh, inviting uh, Abdullah Shamari to come and speak. Thank you. Uh, the, with a title, uh, Saudi Arabia, Consideration of the Regional Geopolitical Dynamics of Iraq and Syria. Viewing that and for how many minutes? Ten minutes. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, uh, I will talk, uh, I should talk about, first of all, about Iraq, then about Syria, but I think I will start with Syria, since it's the hot issue for both of us. So, um, my question, uh, are Saudi, uh, are they uh, very shocked and maybe uh, disappointed from American uh, policy towards Syria? My answer is yes, uh, and I think it's big yes. What, what Saudi are waiting from uh, from United States? For sure, we are waiting uh, some practical uh, 
uh, efforts. We are not uh, exaggerating. We are not expecting the United States to go to Damascus like what they did with Saddam Hussein. But uh, what I think uh, United States, they didn't uh, did even the, the minimum efforts uh, for a Syrian issue. Uh, regarding to Saudi Arabia, uh, since the beginning of Syrian issue, Saudi Arabia did their best with uh, Bashar al-Assad. And you know, we had uh, a great and historical relationship with Hafez al-Assad and his family, and even some private and uh, family relations. So Saudi Arabia tried their best with uh, what they called it uh, unannounced diplomatic efforts that Saudi Arabia usually prefers to do with some countries. But unfortunately, many times, and even King Abdullah sent his son, Prince Abdulaziz, many times personally to Bashar al-Assad, but we, did, uh, we didn't hear any reactions or good response from Bashar al-Assad. So that continues till, till 7th of August 2011, when Saudi Arabia uh, announced through the King Abdullah himself that uh, enough is enough, and this bloodshed must be stopped by Bashar al-Assad. But uh, I might surprise you that uh, even after 7th of August 2011, Saudi Arabia, they didn't uh, stop their uh, diplomatic efforts. So we continued, even we received some uh, Syrian officials after the 7th of August in Riyadh, and we tried to talk with them, but also the result was negative uh, with Syrian. Uh, so uh, this is why we uh, maybe also are more uh, disappointed from American uh, uh, policy because uh, I, am, I am sure Americans, they know about all these diplomatic efforts because we are, uh, as we are very close friends to Americans, I think we don't hide anything uh, between us and the United States. So, and I think His Excellency the Ambassador is, uh, is there, fortunately. So uh, what we are waiting from United States, I, I will tell you frankly, and I'm talking, in, um, I'm talking here personally, I don't represent any official uh, view. I think so the uh, United States has lost uh, a very historical opportunity to uh, work against Bashar al-Assad. And I can tell you frankly, for the Syrian issue, it was the first, maybe since the Afghan, uh, Afghanistan issue, that both in Saudi Arabia, both the religious, extremist, liberal, like uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, they were together to agree uh, against Bashar al-Assad. And that is also plus the government uh, issue. So the, the Saudi Arabian people, it was the first time maybe since many decades that they were in one position, I can say 100 uh, percent, again, uh, I mean with uh, the government against uh, what uh, Bashar al-Assad doing. But unfortunately, the United States, I think, I think they were busy enough with some other issues. So now many people, they are very disappointed. And I, I should tell you this as a Saudi friend. Um, also, Saudi Arabia, we are also very surprised. I remember after maybe two months from the, uh, I mean, uh, let's say the last six months, we start to read in American newspapers that Saudi Arabia is supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria. Al-Qaeda, you know, everybody maybe knows in the United States that we are uh, fighting with Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda, they tried to kill even Prince Mohammed bin Naif at his house just uh, last year. And also, we have diplomats, a friend of us, he's in Yemen now, handicapped. 
And it is not, not secret that we have hundreds of prisoners from Al-Qaeda in the Saudi prisons. So how come we are supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? But of course, Saudi Arabia, under the pressure of the people, uh, and uh, by the way, I'll tell you something, it's not uh, a secret that uh, my tribe, I'm from Al-Shamari tribe, so uh, more than 200 people there in Syria, they are from my tribe. So you can't imagine my mother, how she's crying sometimes in the evening when she sees the news in the, you know, uh, uh, Al-Arabiya or Al-Jazeera or others. So she's thinking about her relatives in Syria. So I, I think American they didn't even imagine how much uh, the Syrian uh, issue affects the feeling, you know, of Saudi people, not just the politicians, but for sure the politicians, we also maybe uh, felt as academician or politician that we were not backed by United States because still some people, some people, they are thinking that United States should be leading the region. We are not expecting to be you know, friend of Russia or China, and maybe, unfortunately, if the United States is continuing this policy, things might, might be changed, because what we are seeing now in the region that Russia, China is trying to maybe raise new allies, with, especially with Iraqi. So, uh, uh, also, I will uh, emphasize about one point. So some people they are saying that Saudi Arabia is fighting Bashar al-Assad because of sectarian issue, because he's Alawi and we are Sunni, Salafi, this is not true, because we were the friend of uh, Bashar al-Assad since many years. So did, did, we, did we discover just last year that his son is uh, Alawi? No, this is not true. So it is just a political issue, uh, not because of sectarian issue. So, so some people who are trying to raise, uh, and I will tell you also another issue. Some people think that we are uh, uh, start to work against Bashar al-Assad to weaken Iran and Hezbollah. And my answer is no, this is not the truth. This is not the main reason. The Saudi Arabia you know, position against Bashar al-Assad was not uh, from strategic and political uh, view. It was uh, you know, regarding to manners and maybe the pressure of the people in Saudi Arabia. <coughs> Otherwise, we could work against Bashar, uh, Iran and not uh, work with Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad since maybe three decades. So uh, unfortunately, there is a huge and, uh, misunderstanding especially since I am receiving many Americans' friends in Riyadh. So uh, finally with Syria, uh, for sure I have to admit that uh, Syrian issue, it is uh, a proof that uh, Arab country and Muslim countries, they are very weak. Yes, they can't solve their problems without helping, especially what we think that United States is the most close friend for us. So we were weak, we were divided. We couldn't do anything, and this is gave you also the future of the Arab League, uh, with full respect of my ex-boss, uh, Dr. Mohamed Hassani. But uh, we can't do uh, and solve any problems uh, under the umbrella of the Arab League or of Islamic OIC. So uh, finally, did Saudi Arabia did some, uh, let's say, mistakes? Or yes, the answer is yes. Also, I think also so the tone of Saudi diplomacy was too much high in the beginning. Uh, so. Many people, they were expecting something to be happened, but there were no, no, nothing happened, so that affected the Saudi credibility, maybe. Also, the second, I think GCC countries, they didn't do, uh, the, let's say, the minimum effort, especially with China and Russia, to pursue them, uh, to, let's say, talk with them, or even to blackmail with them uh, to get to some any uh, result. But they did nothing 
with China and Russia, and now we are even suffering with Russia. Uh, the last uh, maybe uh, point with Syria, unfortunately, one of the bad things, let's say, with the Syrian issue that we are becoming like enemy now with Russia. I mean, we are, uh, especially when you see uh, Russian media. So now the president just gave me two minutes to talk about Iraq. So Iraq, also Iraq, I will tell you something again, maybe personally. Uh, my tribe is a Shamari tribe. I'll take you again from Syria to Iraq. So since decades, we didn't, you know, think about sectarian tension. And now I am not proud to tell you that my cousin is the Minister of Justice in Iraq. His name is Hassan al-Shamari because of this, this sectarian tension. And this sectarian tension, unfortunately, we didn't uh, see it or, let's say, live with it before the American invasion to Iraq 2003. So uh, Saudi Arabia, I think, they were the must loser from the invasion of uh, American to, uh, I mean, Iraq. And uh, it is not secret that, unfortunately, Iran is now controlling both the political and the religious uh, decision in uh, Iraq. We are not exaggerating. Uh, but also, in the same time, I assume Saudi Arabia and the Arab country, they didn't do also the uh, minimum efforts to work in Iraq. Yes, we left Iraqi alone. So Iranian, they were free to work. Uh, with Iraqi, and unfortunately now we have more than, let's say, 10 years that no Arab uh, countries like Egypt or even. But uh, finally, finally, in Iraq, Iraq now, from a Saudi perspective, it's become a threaten for both for Iraq and uh, for Saudi Arabia and for Turkey. Uh, it's not secret that Iraqi, after the Iraqi, you know, uh, American invasion to Iraq, Iraqi issue, it's become an interior issue in Saudi Arabia since we have hundreds of prisoners in Saudi Arabia prisoners that they were, uh, you know, arrested and kept in the Saudi prisoners. So now Iraqi prisoners becoming uh, an interior issue in Saudi Arabia. And also, I think, uh, unfortunately, now Iraq is becoming unfriend of Saudi Arabia, and everybody knows that what they did uh, in Syria, and they, they are supporting Bashar al-Assad, and also the Iraqi media especially, they are very uh, stubbing, and they have to stop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, our last of the speakers before we turn to our respondents is David Lesh. Um, with uh, the title of What Guides Assad and the Syrian Leadership. Thank you, John. And uh, uh, it's always good to be here with uh, my friend John Duke Anthony. And uh, uh, he was very influential early in my career about 20 years ago. And I'm catching up to you now in, in gray hair. So it's always a privilege and a pleasure uh, to be here with him. And I'd say more nice things about him, but I only have 10 minutes. So. <laughs> I think my value added to this panel, because uh, particularly in Mona's paper, I agree with uh, much of what she said, is to present a, a view uh, of the world from Damascus, so to speak, from Bashar al-Assad and the leadership. Uh, and as, as some of you know, that I, I got to know uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad fairly well, met with him on a regular basis between 2004 and 2009, as well as much of the, or not much, but a, a good many of the Syrian leadership. Uh, during that time uh, and thereafter. So I think I have a, a fairly decent idea about how they view the world, and I think this is important in terms of trying to craft a cogent policy uh, toward uh, this particular leadership. 
Now, obviously, uh, you know, the, the popular image today is that Bashar has become the prototypical Middle East tyrant. He unleashed his forces on his own population, and at the end of the day, reminded many Syrians that he was more like his father than the reformer many, including myself, hoped he would be when he assumed the presidency in 2000. Much of the disappointment in Bashar, particularly in the West, is based on what I call the conceptual gap between the Syrian leadership and much of the West of the world. From the beginning, I think the expectations on Bashar were, were too high, and therefore the disappointment was all that much greater. Uh, instead of uh, uh, creating a profile where he liked Phil Collins' music and, and Sony camcorders and electric light orchestra and things of this nature and study for 18 months uh, ophthalmology in, in London, they should have been looking at the fact that he was a child of the Arab-Israeli conflict, a child of the superpower Cold War, uh, a child of the tumult in Lebanon, uh, a keeper of the flame of the Alawite uh, fortress, uh, and most importantly, a child of Hafez al-Assad. When Assad spoke in his first speech to the nation on March 30, 2011, in response to the uh, uprising, he branded terrorist conspirators, armed gangs, as the primary reasons for the unrest. He still does. Most of those outside of Syria scoffed at such blatant misdirection from the real socioeconomic and political problems that brought the Arab Spring to Syria. Uh, but many Syrians, even Assad himself, readily believe this, this stuff. Uh, he, uh, I, I guarantee you he was absolutely shocked when the Arab Spring uh, seeped into uh, Syria. There were three national, he commissioned three, national, three studies by his national security apparatus uh, before uh, the uprising uh, uh, seeped into Syria in March uh, uh, 2011. All three said it wasn't going to happen. Uh, Bashar al-Assad gave a now infamous interview with uh, Jay Solomon in the Wall Street Journal where he basically said Syria was immune from this, uh, uh, this disease in the Arab world. And, and uh, the mouthpieces of the Syrian uh, regime in various publications in, in January and February even expressed support for the protesters in Egypt and uh, Tunisia uh, and elsewhere. So it was kind of a denial almost of what was going on in the rest of the world. Blame it on Syrian you know, paranoia that is widespread, bred by imperialist conspiracy of the past, Arab-Israeli conflict, or regime brainwashing to consecrate the necessity for a security state, but it is in large measure a function of living in a dangerous neighborhood where real threats are indeed just around the corner. It is this conceptual gap that is at the root of the impasse between much of what the international community demands of the Syrian regime and what Assad is actually doing or what he feels he should do to end the violence against the protesters, against the rebels, and enact far-reaching reform. I'm also sure if I had met Assad uh, at any time during the uprising, he would have pointed out to me that he had made extensive concessions and enacted dramatic reforms. He would complain that he is not receiving any recognition or credit for this, and as such, he would conclude, as he has done in the past, that the United States and the West have it out for him. No matter what he does, it will not be enough, so why even try? And I think he would sincerely believe this. He doesn't trust the UN. He doesn't trust the Arab League. He doesn't trust the West. And if you, and there are some people on here, especially Ted Katouf, spent a lot of time in Syria. If you spend any time in Syria, it's tremendously paranoid, particularly with the political elite, in normal good times. And during this particular situation, the paranoia is off the charts. Assad is the product of an authoritarian system, one that is a paradigm of stagnation and control. The Syrian system is not geared to respond to people's demands. It controls people's demands. It's not geared to implement dramatic reform. It's constructed to maintain the status quo and survive. Real reforms are counterintuitive to the basic instincts of an authoritarian system. Now, I got to know, as I said earlier, uh, I think I got to know Bashar al-Assad fairly well. Certainly the, the image, and I think uh, certainly in the beginning, he seemed to be different than the typical Middle East dictator, which led many people to hope that he would incrementally change the system. 
that Bashar was perceived by most who met him to be a relatively normal person, who then sanctioned a brutal crackdown on the uprising, says something about perhaps human behavior in general, and how even so-called normal people can succumb to power. Assad lost his way. Now, there are those who argue, and perhaps they're right, that he, there was never any way to lose. He was this way from the very beginning. I would argue against that. The arrogance of authoritarianism will do that. Either he convinced himself or was convinced by the sycophants that, the well, that his well-being was synonymous with the well-being of the country and that what he was doing in terms of violently putting down the protests and not meeting the demands for change were both necessary and correct. In a way, he had become more comfortable with power, and I saw this up close and personal over the years. It's not necessarily a bad thing, except it's an authoritarian system. So if you become more comfortable with power, you've become a more comfortable authoritarian leader. And in these cases, and this is what Roger Owen has written in his latest book on, on uh, these authoritarian regimes, an alternate uh, reality is constructed and orchestrated around you. You hear this stuff on a daily basis that you're a prophet sent to save the country. You eventually believe it. It's human nature. I believe he developed a strong, a very strong feeling of triumphalism after 2005, after surviving uh, what he would call the worst the Bush administration could throw at him following their opposition and, uh, to the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq, and particularly after the assassination of Rafiq Hariri in uh, 2005. He survived it. He was righteous. He was on the right side of history. It was his destiny to rule, and this has played, in my view, a crucial part, in my opinion, in his response to the uprising. He believes what he is doing is not only surviving, protecting those around him, the system, but he's saving the country. This is another significant challenge, and he will survive. If it takes 10 years to do so, so be it. In another sense, the Syrian government's crackdown is a push-button convulsive response to domestic threat. It's business as usual. I've seen this up close and personal, unfortunately. It is not as though Assad does not control the security forces, that this has been the way Syria works under the Assads. They reach in their, into their historical pocket, pull out what's worked for them in the past, and what they found was much closer to Hamas in 1982 than anything else. And to date, Bashar has not been willing, certainly before the uprising, is that my time? <laughs> Bashar has, I thought there was a new signal. <laughs> Bashar has not been willing to reduce the tremendous amount of leeway that he's given the security forces uh, in his country to deal with threats, real and imagined. Bashar simply went along with business as usual instead of understanding the new circumstances uh, created by the Arab Spring. In addition, the regimes of Hafez and Bashar al-Assad simply do not make concessions from a perceived position of weakness. They will only make concessions from a perceived position of strength. So cracking down on the demonstrators while offering some level of political reforms are two sides of the same coin. This is the Syrian way under the Assads, very much so in their foreign policy as well, where they like to play both sides of the fence. Hafez al-Assad did his job well. He constructed an airtight but stultifying array of family, tribal, and sectarian-based patronage system that produced loyalty. Uh, and stability. And uh, as uh, uh, one of my good friends in Damascus, uh, an astute observer of the scene in, in Syria, wrote uh, uh, last year, he said, quote, for the regime, its supporters, and its allies, Syria's is an immature, if not disease-ridden society. They posit with evidence both real and, um, and invented and generally blown out of proportion that Syrian society shows sectarian, fundamentalist, violent, and seditious proclivities that can be contained only by a ruthless power structure, unquote. Ultimately, Bashar and, and his followers, his cohorts, could not trust anyone else in Syria. His initial strategic vision for an internationally respected and integrated Syria became consumed by a Syrian paradigm of political survival. Thank you. He was either unwilling or powerless to stop what in Syria is a reflexive response to perceived threat. He retrenched into to a typically Syrian authoritarian mode of survival, as I said earlier, an Alawite fortress to protect 
uh, he, he, the, the sects and their, the, the, the various elements in Syria they've co-opted over the years to protect them and their, their chokehold on power. Many of us had hoped Assad would change the system. What seems to have happened is that the system changed him, in my view. Um, three scenarios I, I see, just, just very, very quickly. Continuing stalemate, uh, continuing civil war, and as Paul had, I think, so uh, uh, aptly uh, uh, mentioned to me prior to Whirlpool, uh, getting bigger and deeper, uh, or what I recently wrote about the Lebanonization uh, of Syria. Not exactly apples and apples, but some very uh, similarities. Uh, second, uh, military intervention. I think Mona presented a very good case uh, of, the, of the problems surrounding that. But that's the only way that uh, the opposition, uh, I think, uh, uh, will uh, achieve complete victory uh, over uh, the regime. Although Aleppo is, is teetering right now, it'll be interesting to see what happens if Aleppo falls into rebel hands. Third scenario is the negotiated solution that everyone is hoping for, some of which Mona uh, went over. And I do agree that it has to involve the Russians and the Iranians. The Russians can't. The thing that everyone is assuming, though, is that, that Bashar al-Assad and Damascus is going to listen to anything that the international community has to say. Uh, they may not. In fact, I would say the only ones that have a chance at convincing Bashar al-Assad to accept a negotiated solution that may lead to either an immediate or, or near-term sense, his, his uh, stepping down from power and those around him, are the Iranians. And, of course, that's radioactive uh, right now and, and may be very difficult in an international uh, setting. Um, I think... Personally, uh, not that I particularly like it, uh, but any negotiated solution under the current circumstances will have to include Bashar al-Assad and the circle around him staying in power for some, uh, for some time, uh, perhaps the 2014 election that is, that is coming up, perhaps even thereafter with political reform. The, um, there, are element, there are signs that there are elements in the national community that are getting weary of this conflict. The Turks, I think, are a little weary right now. Uh, there have been some comments, uh, even from the, the Obama administration, shifting from the Manichaean view toward uh, Assad. So, you know, all of these scenarios don't present too much of a pretty picture and obviously lead to more death and destruction in their term. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there are no easy answers to this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we have two respondents. Uh, we have uh, Paul Sullivan, professor of economics, Eisenhower School, National Defense University, as well as adjunct professors in the security studies program at Georgia University and columnist for uh, the Turkiya Gazetsi of, of Istanbul. Uh, we'll ask him to come first. And then uh, lastly, we'll have Ambassador uh, Ted Katouf, uh, president and CEO of Amid East, former U.S. ambassador to the UAE and to Syria. Well, I have to admit that I've been more, have not been more torn about a situation for a long time than the situation in Syria. This is a serious business. Now, when people mention soft power, I think there may be some who get the impression that this is having tea on Lake Geneva and having nice discussions. Soft power is hardball. It's difficult. It could be very lengthy. And to have it effectively used, you need to have a credible threat of violence along with it in order to get people to the table and to listen. If we're just going to use soft power and niceties, nothing will be done. 
It is indeed a whirlpool. The Turks, certainly near the border, are fed up with this, off and on. Erdogan mentions, maybe we'll go to no war, maybe we won't. It's right on their borders. If you remember the time of Öcalan, the Turks brought the military to the border to send a signal. This could kick into an Article 5, NATO. Now that would be quite a mess. And of course the Russians have their only naval base outside of the former Soviet Union in Syria and Tartus. Ladies and gentlemen, the Russians are a very big part of this problem. I would not assume that the United States is the main issue here. If the Russians and the Chinese played ball on this, this could have been resolved a long time ago. But my sense is pessimistic. My sense, it's probably too late to put the Humpty Dumpty of Syria back together again. It has festered too long. All of this time that something could have been done, pretty much nothing was done except to make the situation worse. All of the talk in the United Nations and elsewhere, and the talk of a ceasefire for the Aydalada, <clears throat> these are not solutions. This is talk. It's too late. It's too unclear. It's too fractious. How many in this room could name the opposition? How many in this room have a clear view of who the opposition is or will be? Are they a danger to the United States, to the GCC and others? Do we know this? Are we going to hand weapons to them? I remember a reporter from the Wall Street Journal asking me as the revolution was going on in Libya, Who's the opposition? Do we really know who it is? Well, my answer was at that time, no. And guess what? We're still getting surprises. One of those surprises happened on September 11, and it was a very unhappy one. To have soft power or anything work on a situation like Syria, you have to have coalitions. And I will be very frank, and I'm going to say, as Judy did, a caveat. I'm, I'm speaking in my own opinions, not the U.S. government, obviously, because I'm about to hammer them. We do not have the kind of leadership that's required to have coalitions put together to deal with this situation in either soft power or hard power. And it may not happen properly any time in the near future. Remember that caveat. Now, the other day I was reading through a a book by the Save the Children. And it's about the children of Syria. And if you haven't read this book and you want to understand what's happening in Syria, I recommend you read it. But I assure you, you will feel very uncomfortable on page one. There are costs involved with this situation that could go on for generations, not just for now, generations. Think of what the children are going through now and how they will think about the West the international community, their Arab brothers, the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese, the United States, and just about everyone else. Even if this might be over in the next year or so, it will definitely not be over for those children. Thank you.
Thank you. Ambassador Katouf. I agree with most of what I heard from our uh, panel today, uh, although not surprisingly, I don't agree with it, everything. I think uh, Professor David Lesh has great insight into Bashar al-Assad, and I like, I agree with his analysis of the man. Um, I think uh, he came in thinking he could shape the regime, and instead he became a creature of the regime. Um, there, you know, I don't, Comparing him to Michael Corleone gives him too much credit for his, his savvy and his smarts. But in one sense, he is like Michael Corleone because he came in believing that he could reform an incredibly corrupt and truly mafia-like system. And he found out very quickly that if he was to remain in power, he couldn't do it. And we can speculate whether he wanted to take a softer approach than some of those around him, like his late brother-in-law or his brother, matter, but it really doesn't matter. It's immaterial. Uh, we see the situation, we know what it is, and it's going to continue. I think increasingly there is a consensus of what the situation is in Syria and what some of the pitfalls are. Uh, you know, I think there's much more realism now than there was a year ago about what's going on in that country, and a much more sober assessment uh, on the part of U.S. officials and others as to what can and can't be done. Um, certainly, I, being a former diplomat, you would not be surprised to find out that I believe that, yes, we should be uh, leading a diplomatic effort. Um, but I'm not a fan of those who want to blame America uh, for the situation or blame American actions up to now for the terrible deterioration uh, that has taken place. I remember Gene Kirkpatrick uh, at a uh, Republican convention that uh, was, I think, renominating Ronald Reagan, was excoriating the Democrats for always blaming American first, or America first. Uh, I would say to our Arab friends, you have to be careful too, because, you know, first, it was, we were too present in the Middle East, and I would agree with that. <clears throat> now, the, the uh, the charges were absent from the Middle East. Uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that a number of Syria's neighbors have different interests and are pursuing their interests in different ways, and it's very hard uh, to pull together a coalition of the friends of Syria uh, and get it to be effective, but we have to try. I, like others, I don't have much hope for Iran. In fact, I have no hope for Iran as a, as a, a state that would help with all of this. But uh, as bad as uh, Putin and the Russians have behaved, I don't think we can give up on Russia because they do know the Syrian military. And getting Bashar al-Assad out of the country is not going to solve all the problems. If he leaves, particularly if he leave, were to leave tomorrow, let's say, you would have fragmentation in Syria. For both sides, this is an existential struggle. And the Alawite-dominated army is not going to give up because Bashar uh, gave up. Uh, and the opposition is not going to lay down their arms because Bashar left. So I think we very much, if there's going to be any hope for a resolution that keeps Syria intact for the time being, we need the Russians and we need Putin. 
uh, and we need them to recognize that their nihilistic attitude right now doesn't play well. And I would suggest that a number of countries might do better by putting pressure on Russia uh, rather than uh, excoriating uh, the United States. Uh, I don't believe in military intervention. I think um, we could very well find ourselves backing one side and then only to find that we're incapable of stopping them from massacring the other side if they defeat them. We've seen enough massacres in Syria. I'm afraid there'll be more, but we certainly should not be a party to it. Uh, so I, I think there is no near-term solution. It's an ugly, terrible, horrible situation. It's going to continue whether or not Bashar al-Assad uh, uh, leaves power tomorrow or not. And the United States needs to, uh, particularly after the election, uh, when there's less doubt about who's leading this country abroad, uh, including among the Russians, we need to uh, uh, continue to tr work with, on diplomacy, soft power certainly, humanitarian aid, uh, good intelligence on the opposition, um, all of that. Uh, but we have to recognize that we don't have the key to the solution. Thanks to each of our speakers. Um, I was going to ask if any of the panelists wanted to respond to their fellow panelists. Uh, I think we've in particular seen uh, very strong divergences on the on a potential role for the United States in Syria. I think we've, uh, uh, although the details of that haven't have I, I think yet to be fleshed out for for the panel as well as for U.S. policy, perhaps. Uh, so that would be one thing. If anybody wanted to respond uh, to to that issue. Uh, did anybody want have on, within the panel? Would you like uh, Mr. Shemmeri? Okay. Um, I, I just assume they were indirect uh, um, saying that we are blaming United States uh, why they didn't interfere. We are not uh, just blaming. Maybe we were expecting too much uh, from United States. Uh, also, um, in the same time, uh, I am sure that uh, Syrian issue now, because I am coming from the Turkish border, Syrian-Turkish border, it's become real threat, not just for, uh, uh, for uh, Jordan or for uh, Israel or for Iraq. It is real uh, threat for regional uh, security, and it might be one day, uh, like maybe Afghanistan or Yemen, uh, it might threat even you know, American interest. So we are not just blaming United States just because we are friends. It is it is real. I was there for many three times for the uh, you know Syrian Turkish uh, borders, and you can't imagine how much it's becoming a regional uh, threat for the security region. The second thing, I think United States have responsibility. You are always talking about human rights, supporting democracy, supporting. Kids' rights and women's rights. What about the Syrians? Now, I really was crying in the, in the camps when I was seeing the kids who didn't go to the schools for two years. And uh, might be some of them, they might be terrorists. So my last uh, comments is what is the alternative for uh, if, you are, if, you are not, if you are just going to stay in Washington, I might raise alternatives. 
And I am sure those alternatives will not be good news for the United States. Judith, yeah. I think one of the things that we haven't heard at all here, and yet should be uppermost in our minds, is what went wrong with Iraq, is uh, what happens the day after. And it's one thing to think about how you defeat uh, Bashar or get him to be part of a negotiated solution, fine. But I think one of the t most telling comments was that of uh, that it could end, this crisis could end tomorrow, but the effects of it will linger on. Uh, you don't end the blood feuds and the killings and the violence and the factions and everyone goes home and lives happily ever after. That there, um, and here I would look to, uh, for example, the USIP uh, project on, the, on uh, Syria the day after. What do you do with uh, civil service? What do you do with uh, a Mohabarat state? And how do you make it safe the day after so that Syrians can determine where they go next? We haven't talked about that. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Anthony. Um, we have some uh, written questions handed uh, to us. <clears throat> in terms of uh, empathy again, we talk about the 300,000 uh, refugees and the uh, larger number still of displaced individuals. Would anyone uh, focus on the Syrians who work for the state? Uh, if there's regime change, that's one thing, but those who work for the state, namely those whose entire livelihood comes from their being a postmaster or trash collector or a street sweeper or a school teacher or a person who works in the uh, electricity power plant or any of the other industries um, and whose entire uh, material well-being standard of living is linked to the state. Um, it seems as though no one uh, focuses on them. There, if you take the numbers of killed and the refugees external and displaced, those numbers are but a fraction of the, say, three million who work for the Syrian state. Anybody care to comment on that dynamic and dimension? It can't, can't be wished away. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. Is this uh, working? Uh, no, that's that's a great point. Uh, uh, the the so-called uh, silent majority have yet to be heard from. Uh, again, many of these people just simply trying to stay out of the way. Uh, many who don't necessarily like the regime of, of Bashar al-Assad, but uh, don't see any other viable alternative, which is one of the reasons why perhaps early on in this uprising, uh, international attempts, uh, and there, there were attempts, and there were, it may be an impossible task to try to carve together a, uh, an opposition that has a vision for the future that's more inclusive, that, uh, that offers this, this viable alternative. Again, maybe an impossible task from the beginning. You know, I was doing my own, own math uh, through all of this, and, and uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a country of about 22 million people. Uh, let's say there are two, three million people that are supportive to more or less a degree of the of the regime. Uh, there, the amount of fighters, Syrian fighters, you know, 100,000 would be generous uh, right now. But let's say there's 300,000, 500,000, let's just say there's a million actively supporting in terms of medical support and uh, moving supplies and, and so forth. I mean, we, we have uh, 4 million, maybe 5 million. 
so there's you know 17 million, if my math is correct. Now, many are children, of course, who, who don't have any of you are just trying to survive with their parents. But there are many, many millions, uh, the majority, who, who really haven't been heard from and who are staying as best they can on the sidelines. And there's some areas of Syria that have not been hit as much. Uh, and you know, where they go and how they see this. And, and what they see is, is that uh, you know, the regime is not necessarily going to be gone tomorrow. Uh, it, uh, uh, certainly both sides think they can still win. Uh, and uh, many people think that uh, the, less, you know, the least worst alternative right now uh, is the continuance of, of the regime itself in some form. Uh, and that's something that hasn't been talked about. Uh, and this is one of the big failures of the opposition, as many have said on the panel, it is divided along so many fault lines and fault lines within fault lines uh, that it's, uh, it's very hard to offer themselves up as a credible alternative to many of those who were their silent majority. Just, yes, just for a moment. I think um, I would really just add, frankly, to what David said and I think to Judy's points about the lessons learned from Iraq. And I think the notion, again, that one has to try to envision uh, a Syria in which the structures of the state are, in fact, still preserved. I would differ with David about Assad and those around him staying on. I, I disagree with that point. I don't think that's tenable, uh, given the blood that has been spilt. Uh, but I do think it's essential to have a solution that does try to maintain the integrity of the structures of governance such as they are and security um, in Syria. But I, I'd also like to make another point, and that is I think that the notion that the U.S. is somehow responsible or that it's the U.S.'s job to unseat the Assad regime, I think I would push back against very forcefully. And I think it's important to underscore that what's happening in Syria is, is happening as part of a much broader phenomenon that has engulfed the region of homegrown organic change. Uh, President Obama made no promise of unseating the Assad regime. I think the U.S. is rightly out of the regime change business. And I do think that in order for Syria to have a sustainable, peaceful transition, it has to be one that comes from within. And here I do put more responsibility, quite frankly, on the opposition uh, to do a much better job of attracting minorities, Christians, Druze, Alawites, Kurds, and to coalesce around a, po a vision of a post-Assad Syria in which these minorities feel not only that they would survive, but that they would thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, John, if I can ask uh, four questions very quickly, and anybody can uh, try to answer them. <clears throat> How would a variety of possible future maps of Syria look if separatist and other extremist anti-status quo groups attempted to and succeeded in dividing Syria into multiple political entities, if not new countries? How, given these kinds of possible Syria-centric scenarios, might one rank these yet-to-be-achieved or yet-to-be-attempted alternative, uh, alternate maps of Syria in order of probability. Uh, number three, how, if at all, does Israel stand to gain from the conflict in Syria? And lastly, how 
in light of persistent attacks on Iraqi American and other security forces in Iraq, contract uh, security forces on the American side. Can one envision Iraq regaining the degree of national sovereignty, political independence, and territorial integrity that it manifested prior to the American-led invasion and occupation? John, you want to choreograph it? the response. Okay. So why don't we just, since these are our last round of questions, we'll start with Mona and work our way this way. Uh, why don't, I'll just take a stab at that first question because I think it's a, it's a very important one. Um, and it is that as we contemplate various scenarios in Syria, the notion of uh, a Syria in which the regime implodes or in some way collapses and we have a country that uh, becomes segmented or divided along sectarian or, and ethnic lines is, I would argue, very much a possibility. I don't foresee borders being redrawn or statelets starting, but I think to, to coin or to, to borrow uh, David's phrase of the Lebanonization of Syria, I think that that's actually quite possible, that one sees various uh, groups uh, retreat to their ancestral uh, strongholds. Um, and you see a Syria that really is uh, for many, many, many years uh, beholden to uh, a conflict. The, the one last comment I'd make is, as I'm watching what happens in Syria, I am increasingly struck by the notion that we may be seeing the unraveling of the post-Ottoman era uh, uh, in the Levant. And, and that that has huge implications, uh, not only for Syria, but for the region more broadly. This is a part of the world that has really, on its own, never been able to reckon fully with its minorities and how, as Arabs, they would like to uh, govern. And I think that that's a huge question that will be coming uh, in, the, in the months and years ahead. Paul and uh, Judith. Uh, I think so, yeah. Uh, getting back to the question of the post-Assad, I wanted to give an answer to that as well. I think one lesson that some may have learned almost by accident about Iraq is you do not fire the people who know how to run the electrical stations, the water plants, the refineries, and just about everything else. That makes absolutely no sense. You want to keep them on. Of course, there'll be great tensions within the country if these people are still running it. But I'm also an energy person as well as a Middle East person. It takes a long time to train up people to know how to run these things or to work them or fix them. If you just pull them out of the factories, you're going to have a collapsing economy which will drag it right back into instability. This is going to be a very difficult trade-off. Uh, with regard to the country splitting up in Lebanonization, I would hope that would not happen. If there is a Kurdish group in the north that wants to separate out, I can pretty much assure you the Turks would not be welcoming of that concept. So that might cause some difficulties. Uh, there may be some warlordism for a while. The brutality of Assad's Baathism essentially kept things in check for some time. Uh, what would Israel gain from the conflict? As far as I can see, it's losing on all sides on this one. It's in a very insecure area, much more than at any time in its history. I think the, um, 
de-Ottomanization, if you will, of this region is something which haunts everybody. The problem is a lot of people see different patterns. For example, will Iraq break up into a Sunni stand, a Shia stand, and a Kurdistan? Well, then you have to think about Iraq as being Arab, not as being Sunni or Shia. And it is hard to see that. The Kurds have a lot of ambitions, and the absence of power, the absence of the state, encourages uh, Kurdish ambitions, both in Iraq, as we've seen when uh, Baghdad collapsed, and certainly in terms of what's happening in Syria. Um, I think that uh, the strategy for both whatever government follows in in, in uh, Damascus will be similar to what Saddam's was. You take care of the worst problems first. The Kurds are not the highest priority, and you'll get around to them later, and things will go back to the way they were before. It is a high risk, but um, I, it's hard to see uh, a total um, what redivision. If you look at the ter both in terms of the ethnic and sectarian differences, it's not all about religion. It's about very complicated layers of this onion which makes up the region. Um, as for the question about Iraq, can it or will it uh, regain? It's already there. Um, part of the problem in terms of what the, the government in Baghdad is trying to do, and it doesn't matter if it's Maliki or anybody else, he believes in a strong central government, certainly stronger than the Constitution, which is very weak, and was written by Shia and Kurds, who said never again to a strong central government. But can you have a government that functions and can protect the country and have it as weak as it is and not be able to uh, defend its borders and to project national power? So there are people, and the NDI survey that was, the polling survey that was published in uh, April or May says that Maliki, love him or hate him, he certainly is more popular now than he was six months ago. And he's popular including among Sunnis and others who see him, not that they like him, they don't have to like him, this is not a popularity contest, I think the Iraqis know that, but they don't know who else is there and he has done, taken moves, strong moves to defend them and the country. And uh, he who delivers at the end of the day is the one who's going to stay in power right now. It's not a perfect system, but Iraq is a work in progress. But I think to say that it doesn't have its control of its territory, it has its borders and its territory, it needs to be able to control them <laughs> against its neighbors, and it doesn't have that now. And that's why I tried to frame uh, a series of choices in a way that Iraq has to make choices to what it can best do to acquire what it needs to defend itself, and that may, may be staying with Assad or not. The remaining uh, answer is if it can confine their responses to one minute. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, uh, I think there's a great irony in that Hafez al-Assad, particularly during the Lebanon War, and it, it, it's been a doctrine of the uh, Ba'athist regime in Syria that it, the Zionists wanted the fragmentation of the Levant along sectarian and religious lines to lend greater legitimacy, presumably to uh, a state that was based on uh, either Jewish ethnicity or religion, take your pick. Uh, and yet it may be the Alawite dominated army that is forced to fall, that is forced to concede great swaths of Syria to one or another uh, group among the opposition and fall back on Damascus and the coastal mountains and uh, Latakia, along with the Christians, uh, etc. And as was said, this, these fault lines, these religious and ethnic fault lines, encompass Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, Bahrain, 
uh, and overlaying all of this is uh, a rivalry uh, between the GCC and Iran uh, for uh, predominance uh, in, in, in the region. So, as I said, there's, there's uh, uh, I think, unfortunately, I, I think that fragmentation, at least temporarily, is a very possible, if not probable, outcome of what we're seeing. David, John. Okay, well, I think we've been reminded both of the, the human reality, certainly in the case of Syria, but also in Iraq, of what's happening, the need for, for policy, the difficulty of the choices. Uh, thanks to all of you for, for being here. Thanks to uh, Dr. Anthony and the National Council for hosting this. Thanks to all. Of you.